Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's a real cool club on the other side of town where the real cool kids go to sit around and talk bad about the other kids. Yeah, it's a real cool club and you're not part of it. There's Bailey Pickles and Patty Yo. What's up, Ben? How you doing? Good. You can hear me then, yeah? I can hear you. Yeah, I can't see you. You're just going to do audio, though. Right. Oh, you can't see me? Well, you should I, You should be able to, even if... There we go. Um, even if it's just going to be a podcast. Oh, I showed up? Yeah, you're there, man. You're in the room. Cheers. Nice to make your acquaintance. Okay. Let's get this there. Okay. This poster behind me isn't planned. It's always there. But I must say, when oh. I saw the cover to the Freaks of Atavism record, I was like, Clockwork Orange. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote my dissertation on that book. And um, yeah, just a fascinating exploration of so many things. Free will versus determination and language and manipulation of that. And I um, I had Mike from MXPX on my show recently. And the reason I actually reached out to you is I was listening to some of Mike's podcasts in, in, you know, in advance of him coming on the show just to kind of get a feel for his show. And yours was one of the ones that I checked out because yours isn't a name that I often see on podcast lists. Like there's very few Ben Weasel podcast appearances out there. And I've got to say, it was one of my favorite, not just interviews, but conversations I've heard in quite a while. Um, It was a long one, a couple of hours. And a big kind of crux of the discussion was 
and you don't really hear this being broken down in an objective and intelligent way enough, I don't think. And it's kind of why I wanted to invite you on the show to continue the discussion on. But your analysis, really, of this kind of social climate that we're in at the moment with cancel culture and wokeism. Um, now, for me, there's not really like a left and a right. I think that's too simplistic and black and white. But there are definitely, it seems to me at the moment, two sides, two opposing groups, right? And one group thinks that everybody in the other group is like a racist, homophobic, sexist piece of shit. And then the other group thinks that everybody in the other group is like a snowflake libtard and they're both just at each other constantly. And I'm kind of in the middle, as I'm guessing you probably are, looking at both sides going, what the fuck went wrong? Now, what I'd like to ask you to begin with, Ben, sorry, I'm just kind of mind spaghetti you. Go for it. But um, you've been around a while and obviously like since the 50s, since the birth of the teenager as a thing, there's always been these generational divides, but you usually grow out of it. And now there's like people who are in their 30s looking at people who are above 50 and, you know, going, oh, OK, boomer, whatever, you're out of touch because maybe they're not up to date with the latest lingo or terminology. It just seems to me like we're more divided now than ever before. And I would love to get your take on everything that I've just spewed at you, Ben, and we'll go from there. <laughs> well, uh yeah, I, I mean, I do think I'm in the middle, but no, you know, nobody wants you to be in the middle. So if if you know, it's funny, I'll get people on social media who are really not my kind of people who who are like, yeah, man, this dude's right on, and and they're they are kind of the crowd that you know uses terms like libtards. And this and that. And I've even, you know, gone as far as to say, like, look, we're not, you know, I'm not, I'm not your guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not your champion. I'm just, but uh I think that that the reason there's a lot of reasons why I'm interested in in what's happening. Uh as am but, I right. And it's a pretty interesting phenomena, but um, but there's I think a, a a, a particular interest to me because I've seen this played out so many times going back to the 80s in punk rock. This was par for the course in punk. And it's it's still, no matter it, it, no matter how bad it gets and no matter how much it plays out, this uh the the idea of applying uh ideological purity tests to people uh, that that became mainstream just never ceases to uh, surprise me and, and, and disappoint me, frankly, because even in, um, you know, and a lot of us, you know, certainly myself, when I had my head up my butt and I didn't even know what I was talking about, at least I knew that that stuff, you know, was lunacy. And, and so that stuff was really, on the one hand, really you know, pretty common and par for the course in punk. But on the other hand, quite a lot of people just, you know, didn't take that seriously and just sort of rolled their eyes at it. I mean, it's essentially something out of Monty Python. It's very much a, a thing of, you know, you find yourself getting into these situations where the Judean people's front is fighting with the people's front of Judea. And it, it it's like that stuff was 
so it goes back certainly further than than I've been around. I mean, it goes back at least to the hippie movement and probably a lot further. And there always seemed to be, for some reason, that didn't, there seemed to be a safeguard. What it was, I don't know. But for some reason, that never seemed to spill over into the mainstream. For instance, um, watching the nightly news, uh, like the national national news here in America, um, there was at least a pretense of objectivity. Uh, news reporting was one thing and giving your opinion was, was a different thing. And those things are combined across the board, but, but because the liberal view is the, is the more common view in news media, uh, there's just more of it in terms of mainstream media, then that's kind of the thing that draws my attention. But they're, they're, um, it's funny if you, when you see people who actually try to do reporting now on anything remotely political or sociopolitical, um, they're just, they're dragged into that. It doesn't matter, their conduct is irrelevant. They're dragged into that fray and they're, and they're labeled, you know, you're secretly somehow for this side or that side. It's a funny thing. It's a strange phenomenon. And I don't know. It's easy to say, well, it's the Internet. And certainly the Internet facilitated that because there was never a time, you know, if you were a kind of a crazy person with too much time on your hands or a crank you, and you wanted to complain about the stuff that was in the newspaper. Well, you had to sit down and write a letter and put it in an envelope and address it and put a stamp on and throw it in the mailbox. And sometimes they printed your letter and sometimes they didn't. But you had to make some sort of effort. You didn't have that instant gratification. So certainly that has something to do with it. But also somewhere along the way, most people, and like you said, a lot of grown adults who should know better, um, completely abandoned the idea that, that, um, that the people that you disagree with politically are in your opinion, wrong, but but that they're not necessarily evil. In other words, you weren't, um, the idea that you were gonna draw um, inferences about a person's morality from their political views, unless they were very, very extreme views, like Nazism, um, was absurd. And, and part of the reason I, I think that moved is because we started calling every everybody we didn't like a Nazi. <laughs> So, you know, and if somebody really is the next Hitler, then, then yeah, you're justified in being really over the top. But the problem is the next person really isn't Hitler. It's just like somebody, somebody who got, it's Joe Biden, or it's, you know, it's somebody who, who got your order wrong at Starbucks and gave you a caramel latte instead of a macchiato. And, and so it's gone completely nuts. And so well, here, here's a couple of things I'd like to throw into the, the conversation. One is age and the other is like class and economics, because these are two areas for me, which I feel are left out of a lot of these discussions. And Absolutely. We all get old. Eventually, we all become old. So to kind of discriminate against someone because of their age to me is ludicrous. But I feel like a lot of you know, people of a certain age just aren't up to speed, up to date with some of the right terminology. And in their heart, I don't think they're a bad person with 
horrible beliefs. I just think perhaps they're not as woke as some of the younger, more informed people. That also comes in education as well. If people aren't college educated because of their economic background, perhaps they're not up to speed with you know the current discourse as well. And I think what we've seen is like a lot of people are just busy out there trying to work and pay bills. And maybe they're not as clued in and, and woke as some of the more college educated middle class people. But the problem is, if you put a shackle on those people and try and shut down their free speech, then they're going to, by just their nature, I think, move more towards the right because they can then feel like they can say what's on their mind there. And that's a massive oversimplification. But I feel like a, a lot of the reasons why we saw Trump and Brexit here in the UK is like a lot of working class people have just kind of gone, well, I, I used to vote Labour. I used to be left wing. But now these people over here, they won't let me say anything and I don't meet their rigid There's... rules. So I'm going to go over here where I can kind of say more what's on my mind. And that's a fucking dangerous situation. Yeah, the, the, I think that's exactly right, that the, the um, realities of class um, are completely lost on the very, very, really small, insignificant, but very powerful and loud um, voices that, that, I mean, this is not a large group of people, really, but they have a lot of power. And they, I really believe, um, the cultural elites, as we might say, have nothing but but abject contempt for the poor. I mean, yeah. everything and the working class, like everything that they talk about that's supposed to benefit them, it's always in the abstract. But it's kind of like we see that a lot here. I'm in a very um, I'm just outside a very liberal city, one of the most liberal in the country here uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And and I have seen it. Um, in the 15, 16 years I've been here where it'll be harping endlessly on, we need to do things for minorities. We need to do things for, especially for poor people and minorities. And yet over and over and over, the housing gets built as far away as you can possibly conceive from the universities and from the areas where the people who um, work in state uh, state and city government live. They get pushed to the outskirts of town and forgotten about it's, it, it. It's kind of this idea, like I did my part now, now it's up to the bureaucracy to do the rest, but thank God I don't have to deal with these people. So there's, um, and what happens I think is there's, you see these crazy kind of initiatives come up and opposition to them is painted as right wing. But for instance, this idea of food deserts, have you heard this one? No. I don't know if that's a thing in the UK. So in, in cities like Madison and in cities all over the country, we're told that there are quote unquote food deserts where poor people can't, they can't get, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and, and healthy things to eat. And, um, and the concept that perhaps there's a supply and demand, first of all, we all, we have public transportation. So, so you can go anywhere you want in the city, but the idea is that, that um, there's no other possible explanation for why those stores might not be in those neighborhoods, like perhaps the people in those neighborhoods don't want fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy things to eat, it never occurs to the, to the cultural elite. And I think based on observation, having spent time around poor people, uh, not, not that I'm a great champion of the poor, but having observed when you look at poor, you know, and education is always a big one. Well, they're ignorant, so they smoke cigarettes. This is completely wrong. There's, there are no food deserts. Because when you see these initiatives and, and, and 
they'll, they'll move, you know, a, a grocer into the area with fresh fruits and vegetables, they go out of business because nobody's buying them. And the reason people aren't buying them isn't because they're dumb. It's not because poor people are dumb. It's not because they don't care about themselves. It's because they don't have any hope. When you don't have any hope that you're ever going to be anything but poor, of course you smoke cigarettes. You're not stupid. You know it's bad for you. Of course you're going to eat junk food because it's that immediate. Uh, well, time. You, you know, time's, to, a big, time's a big factor as well, right, Ben? If you're working all the time, you're taking care of your family all the time. You don't have time to do yoga and, and exercise. That's right. Meditate. That's right. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff that people want to push on working class and poor people is really just very privileged white people stuff that that they they kind of want to push on people for their own good. But th there's a much deeper problem there, which is, I think, ultimately the lack of hope, the lack of a belief that someday I can, you know, the great American dream that if you work hard. You can um, you can get out. You can you know rise in the uh, in the uh, social stratosphere, as it were. And people don't believe that. Maybe they're wrong for believing that. Maybe they're right. I, I I'm not really sure. I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. But um, but uh, there there isn't. I mean, at, you can talk about social problems all you want, but what, what it really comes down to is people's behavior and why they behave the way they do. And a lot of the stuff that is, um, when you see well-educated, um, you know, relatively well-off people on Twitter acting like complete lunatics and freaking out. Now imagine having those same impulses when you don't have any power, right? It, it, it has, I think, a, a proportionately more severe negative effect on the on the poor and on the working class. And 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 we don't discuss class. I don't know about in the UK, but we don't discuss class in this in this country anymore. And when a guy like Joe Biden comes out, and he does, because he spent his whole career, you know, positioning himself accurately or not as champion of the working class, I've noticed more and more. It falls on deaf ears. Nobody cares. They want to hear about race. Yeah. They they want to hear it's about the same the here. Stuff. Identity politics is all people yeah. want to hear about. Um, and as you say, the 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 lower class people get left behind. They get left out of the dialogue. So they're left there thinking like, you know, the government's left us behind. And now people, everyday people are leaving us behind as well. Like as you say, and then fucking hope just evaporates, doesn't it? Yeah. And they know they're not respected. They know they're disliked. They know they're hated. And I think it's still the case often in America where blacks don't feel comfortable necessarily, poor blacks, I mean, coming out and saying that. I mean, it's certainly more the case than it used to be. But if you really want to know, just spend some time around poor whites because they, they don't hesitate to say it. They're not intimidated and they don't hesitate to say it. They fucking hate those people. And, and that's why. You know, liberals like to say, well, why do these people vote against their interests? Because they're not going to vote for you because they know you fucking hate them. You make it clear over and over in your jokes and your comedy shows and, and in the in your opinion pieces and your um, in your shows on the political uh, cable channel and your podcast. You make it clear that you don't understand. You mock them. You 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 
And look, man, everybody's do some mockery, but I'm saying this is, it's mean spirited. It's, we don't like these people. We don't like what we, they stand for. And, you know, and sometimes somebody will get caught on a hot mic like Barack Obama. Well, you know, they're bitter. They cling to their guns and religion. I mean, that, as long as you have that mentality, which by the way is wrong, it's just such a oversimplification. Um, but as long as you have that mentality, then you're never gonna win those people over. Uh, and, and granted, and I'd be the first to admit it, the right wing and the conservatives totally take advantage of those people. It's not like they're better off. And I don't think, I don't think they, most of them believe they're better off, but it's kind of, I think when people, I think most of the poor people who voted for Donald Trump, both elections, it was a big middle finger. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily, these weren't, same with Brexit over here. Yeah. They weren't the QAnon people. Granted, Trump had his true believers, but I think most of the people, I don't know, I didn't vote for him. I think most of the people who voted for him, though, that were that were poor working class people, it was just fuck you to everybody else. It wasn't so much Trump's great. It was fuck you to everybody else because we know what you think of us. You mentioned um, mean spirited there. And, you know, I think that with the punk scene in particular, people have forgotten in recent times that you can have a sense of humor and be funny and stand for something and one of the words i heard you use a couple of times in your chat with mike was how a lot of these people are so joyless and their cause is so joyless and joy i mean if you don't have joy like what's the point in living right and and it is it's it's so mean-spirited is one thing but then like with a lot of this cultural attack it's so joyless and it's almost like anybody who's having fun even if they actually stand for shit, that's the same as what you stand for. They're like, no, they're, they're making light of this. So we're going to have yeah. to. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, on the one hand, that's, you know, just again, par for the course in, in that world of being really, you know, that world of being really, really politically, socially, uh, socio-political uh, mentality and being really engaged in that world. Um, but I think there is also, a, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not the originator of this theory. Many people smarter than me have talked about this as well. But I think there's, um, I think what we're seeing in the U.S. and and in Europe and the U.K. as well in Western culture in general is as we increasingly um, reject religion and 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 every sphere of li- sphere of life. Um, we aren't necessarily aware that it is apparently, as far as I can tell, um, and and it's it's kind of embedded in our DA, the DNA, the religious urge, right? So um, whether it's a you know an evolutionary thing, I don't know, but we seem to be drawn to religion, and when we don't have organized religion anymore, as as many, I would even say most people don't. Um, we need to keep in mind that it's going to be replaced with something else, whether we like it or not. So for many, many people, politics has become their religion. So this idea that uh, that you're going to be virtuous, um, and, and we do this a lot online now, um, is thought of by most people as just sort of that's the way things are. There's, there's no, it doesn't occur to them to think about it in theological or even philosophical terms. Why do we care? 
about being virtuous? What is, what is driving us to care about this? What is driving us, for instance, to care about racism? If it's a sense of justice and a sense of fairness, where does that come from? And why do we feel that we must be obedient to it? Um, but these are all things that we're driven to do. So we're going to do them whether we have religion or not. But as much as people like to knock religion, what, what I think they miss about it on the positive side is that there are um, safeguards in place to keep it from turning into lunacy. Now, sometimes there'll be a sect or of charismatic individual who will cross that line and maybe bring some followers along. So you get your Cotton Mather and your, and your, and you know, your modern day guys, your David Koresh, and you get your lunatics like that. But for mainstream, uh, especially uh, Jews and Christians, uh, we're, we're very careful about the whole kind of holier than thou thing. You know, trying to remove the uh, log in your own eye before you start criticizing people for the splinter in theirs. So there's a whole set of things in these in the Judeo-Christian religions that um, you can ignore them, but they're there that are designed to keep you from from being really sanctimonious and overly obsessed with other people's um, conduct and things like that. But in our but what we're experiencing now. uh what we're talking about now, there are no such safeguards. There are no limits. In fact, the whole point of the game seems to be one of kind of one upsmanship. Who can be more sanctimonious than the next person? And and ego and that, as well. ego yeah. is a big part of it, isn't it? And that I think is what you're seeing. You know, when you talk about you, you talked about uh, me using the word joyless. I think that's at the heart of that. Is that in the Judeo-Christian religions, there is there are so many rules that people get hung up on that they forget that there is a, an enormous amount of gratitude involved in that. I mean, the primary function of a religious service is to offer praise and gratitude and thanks and um, and love and that is, and, and yeah and love and that is all. Um, you know, if you don't like religion, that's fine, but you can't deny that that's there and that that's part of it. Um, you can certainly deny that maybe some people don't embody that as well as they should. But but my point is, as a system, it's there. And as a system, when we make uh, politics or uh, science or whatever it is, when we make that our religion, we don't think to put in any safeguards like that. And I'm not sure they would work even if we did. Because again, the, the religious believer, and I'm one, um, believes very much in grace. And there is no grace in wokeism. There is no grace in, in QAnon land either. I mean, it's, it's so there's, and that means there's no mercy. And there's not really any forgiveness. I mean, we might let you back in the club if you really get down on your knees and grovel for a while, but, uh, but you're never really going to regain your status. And you know somebody somebody pointed out to me, and I think this is this was an excellent point that um, a, a, quite a lot of what's happening, I think, is also it doesn't really require a lot of uh, analysis because I think it's much simpler. Which is when you find when you when you really start looking at this stuff, you'll find. And I had it with me. I had a guy call me out, you know, guy with a tiny little record label and a grown man, like in his thirties or forties, tiny little record label. 
um, called out the label I was with at the time, telling him to drop me. And uh, and was a buddy that, was of that mine. Fat Mike? No, 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 no. This was this was another. This is a complete nobody. Nobody's ever heard of the guy. This was like the biggest thing he ever did in his life. And uh, and so I was talking. My guitarist knows the guy, and he said, "Yeah, this this guy's got a long history of." really ugly racist stuff. I mean, yelling racist things at black people and inviting white power skinheads to a punk show where they beat everybody up. Yeah, this kind of stuff. And so you find that often the people who are the most woke and who are are the most critical have these really ugly, racist, sexist, homophobic pasts. And I used to think, well, I just assumed, well, these people are doing this because they don't want people digging that up and and pointing at them. I'm not sure that's true. I think what it really comes down to is they used to be bullies, and this is the new socially acceptable way to be a bully. I think it's that simple. Uh, Not an original thought on my part, but when somebody mentioned it to me, I said, yeah, I I, I think I've been thinking about this all wrong. I think what it really comes down to is if you really want to fuck with somebody uh, and not take any shit at all for it, just, just be batted on the back for it, let alone, you know, not only not be criticized, but you can actually be lauded as a hero. Then you just go woke and start attacking people. You could fuck with people and be cruel to people to your heart's content. And, and you're not going to pay any price for it. In fact, you're going to gain status for it. That's an interesting take and a big kind of hypocrisy in all of it, because they're meant to be, you know, preaching about compassion and being liberal. But yet anybody in their life will slip up, make a mistake, or even that mistake was made 10 years ago and it's been dragged up. And I'm talking little mistakes here. I'm not talking pedophiles, rapists. You know, I'm not right. talking the heinous human beings of this earth. I'm talking regular human beings that maybe made a mistake. And these people that claim to be compassionate and liberal will attack those people, eradicate them from their lives. And that doesn't fall in line with what they're meant to be representing. And that's the great hypocrisy in all of it for me. Well, it's I, I mean, obviously it's hypocritical, but it's also the great tragedy to my mind is that you that you create a universe when you go down that road, you create a universe in which everyone is meant to live up to your great standards. And so, first of all, you're completely missing the most important point, which is fuck you. You're 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 just as bad as everybody else. I mean, you're 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 kind of putting yourself up there as this paragon of virtue, which if anybody had, you know, it's like you said, if anybody ever digs up something from 10 years ago that you said, some remark you made, you're fucked. So so it's dishonest to begin with, but um, and we've seen this before where some very woke people have suddenly been dragged out into the public square and put in the stocks because some of their own shit got got dragged up and they don't get it. They're completely confused. They thought it could never happen to them. Well, this is unfair. And it never occurs to them that that they've been unfair to other people. But the but the real tragedy of it, honestly, I think is that you're you're shutting out all these other people and all these other views. You're shutting everything out and making your world so much smaller. How horrible is that? And you're also I think damning yourself to some extent in that um, in that you 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 are not 
allowing for the possibility of redemption. So if somebody legitimately, and most of the time it's not a big deal at all, but if somebody legitimately does do something wrong, maybe something really wrong, um, why don't they deserve a chance at redemption? And, and I think because that has been the, the, the idea that people are redeemable has been pretty much at the forefront of, uh, of Western civilization. Yeah, I mean, going back to the time of Christ, at least, um, a lot of people will argue that this is all post-enlightenment stuff, but, the, but those people are wrong, and we don't have time to get into that. But, uh, but if we're going to overturn that, if we're, so, if we're suddenly going to say, no, if you, if you do something bad, if you do something really fucked up, and who among us hasn't, then you're not redeemable. First of all, you're living a lie because, like I said, who among us hasn't? And second of all, you're making your world so small. And, and, and that's the part, you know, I, I used to say on my uh, podcast and on my uh, video things that I would do, uh, you know, if, you're, if your buddy Jim is, talks a lot of racist bullshit, um, is the best option to say, fuck you, Jim, we're not hanging out with you anymore, or is the best option to say, when Jim starts running his mouth to say, oh, Jim, you're full of fucking shit, but you know, you're still a friend to Jim. And you hope that since the rest of you aren't idiots, that maybe some of it will rub off on him and he'll drop the fucking act. I mean, to me, that's the way to approach life. I don't understand this way where we're just gonna, we're gonna shut the guy out. I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand how that makes the world better. Or if you want to call them out, you call them out in private to them yes. and you say here's why what you think is perhaps wrong here's the other side let's meet in the middle maybe right and maybe jim won't meet you in the middle maybe he's a great guy in every way but he just can't keep his stupid fucking mouth shut when he gets on this subject and i think the best reaction then is everybody rolls their eyes and say jim you're making a fucking fool of yourself again just knock it off but 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 this idea that you're going to shut him out completely and I know this isn't going to be a popular thing uh, to say, but I think there are far worse things in the world that you can be other than a racist. Being a racist is a bad thing, but, but most of the people who are really racist have no power, right? Um, I think there's a lot worse things you can be. I think being a thief, I think being disloyal, you know, there's a whole list of things, but somehow we've decided racist. And I think we have done it not because we're wonderful, compassionate people who care about people of color. I think it's because it's fucking easy. It's just easy to say it. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is go on Twitter and run your mouth and you're done. I did my part. You don't have to, you know, roll up your shirt sleeves and get in there. You don't. You certainly don't have to talk to anybody uh, who who might be a different color than you. You certainly don't have to interact with them. All you have to do is say the right things, parrot the right phrases, and and my work is done. And I'm a virtuous person. I think it's a lot harder than that. I think you get down in the trenches with these guys um, who believe things that you believe to be wrong and that you believe to be. Uh, morally suspect at very least. And yeah, you have it out with them. I mean, the answer, it's, it's, it's this very similar to the idea of the idea that free speech is about not oppressing people's speech, but answering it with better speech. And in the same way, 
I think the idea that we're going to we're going to say you racists go over here and you're cut off from society. That is how you end up with Trump. You know, that a gang of racists getting together to talk about their racist shit and they're enraged and they're empowered. Yeah. And it's just going to intensify and accelerate and worsen matters, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and to, to me, there is no better uh, solution to the problem than a good argument. Not in the sense that you're necessarily going to convince the person you're talking to. But if these debates were actually happening on TV in real time with smart people on the left, not people who are so indoctrinated that they've never heard an opposing point of view and therefore can't even form an argument. But if you've got smart people on the left who are who are um, who are arguing against racism, who are arguing against all these isms that I think you probably are against and that I'm against. If we've got that, then we may we may not be convincing the person we're arguing with, but all a whole bunch of other people are seeing this. And I think the good argument, the best argument tends to win, maybe not all the time, but I think it tends to win over more people than the bad argument. Yeah. And as, as you say, all you need is somebody who can see the full picture, present their argument with compassion and intelligence. And even if you don't wholeheartedly agree, you're at least going to come away from that with a broader perspective, aren't you? You know, one of one of the you are and and one of the things we get a lot of people are, are against affirmative action. And and uh, I don't know if you guys had had similar programs like that over over uh, in your neck of the woods. But um, but what people often forget, almost always forget about affirmative action is that it wasn't about it was never about. Uh, black people or other minorities have been discriminated against. So we're gonna, we're gonna balance the scales, right? We're gonna, we're gonna give them kind of a leg up above white people to get things. That was not the basis of it. And it was not the justification for it. The justification was this, because of our history of racism, uh, institutional racism, actual systemic racism, which, which had existed up to that point. Because of that, uh, people of color have been excluded from positions, uh, job positions in our society. And affirmative action aims to address that, not because we wanna be fair, but because that's bad for society. It's bad for society not to have the best people in the position. So if we reject, if we have rejected people systematically over, you know, hundreds of years, um, this has had a, a negative effect on society. And we will remedy this by ensuring that that this no longer happens. We will remedy this by ensuring that uh, that these policies create the result, and you can argue about whether they worked or not, but the, these policies create the result that, that, that we will get the best and the brightest at every level of every job that we're no longer, and I think that's an excellent argument. I think that's about the best argument against racism that you can think of. Let's just open the doors and get everybody in. You know, when, I, when I'm doing my band, I want the best people. I don't care. I, I don't. I can't afford to be biased against somebody uh, because of their skin color. I I can't afford to be biased against somebody because if they're gay or whatever. Because uh, 
they've got to be they've got to be the best. That's all I care about. But but and I know that's not a popular thing to say now. So you can't be colorblind. There's no such thing as colorblindness. And that's just another form of racism. But but it's nonsense. I mean, ultimately, if you want to reach people, if you want to really get people where it counts, everybody understands that and everybody thinks that's fair. Everybody agrees. This is this is fair that if somebody who is really talented and really good is 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 locked out of a position because of their sex or their sexuality or their race, that's wrong. I think that appeals to people's sense of fairness. Uh, but when we make these arguments that, you know, no, everybody's a racist. And the more you think you're not a racist, the more you actually are a racist. And 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 this, this idea that we live in a white supremacist system. No, we fucking don't. It's embarrassing. It's childish. It doesn't it doesn't uh, it, it, it's a view that falls apart the second it's debated. And they know that. And that's why no debate is allowed. If you're on Twitter, you get blocked. You know, it, when these when the people who who are pushing critical race theory are invited to debate, uh, they don't show up because it's because it's not debatable, according to them. But but I think it's because they can't debate it because their arguments are bad. Um, but that's not to say and this is an important point, And it seems to me that you probably agree with this. That's not to say that the that the other side has it right. You know, it's more to say, why don't we fix things on on our, like we can't rely on the right wing to fix things you know so I, why I mean, aren't I we i don't really identify we... with any politics to be honest i don't feel like any of them represent me people is is what interests me and i think people are the only thing that can make a difference and that's why i hate it when i see people at each other and falling out over such you know i don't want to say trivial things because you know it's all relative but all I've seen in my lifetime is the rich get richer and the political and corporate elite consolidate their power more and more over time. And particularly the left just eat itself apart with identity politics and self-righteousness. And it's just really disheartening to see. Are you a father, Ben? You got kids? Yeah. Did you kind of, did you worry about the future for them? Where we're yeah. headed? I mean, absolutely. Every time I go on high alert every time I get a, a notice from the school about about race, because race doesn't, you know, or transgenderism. That's the other big thing right now, um, because those things don't mean what they meant even five years ago. And so well-meaning people, I think our president, Joe Biden, is one of them, well-meaning people. And it's like you said, they're older, they're from a different generation. But when you say social justice to most people, including people of my generation, we're like right on because we think we know what that means. But but it doesn't mean that anymore. These terms have been hijacked. So I worry about it. And I think the only thing I can do on my end is just teach my kids, like get used to having unpopular views because and it's not like here's the views you're indoctrinated. It's like you're going to use your brain and you're going to argue your point and you're going to argue not just against people who agree with you you're going to argue i mean i push that on my kids when they when they think something is unfair in the house or they've been treated unfairly or they've gotten a, a, a punishment they've lost their you know screen time or whatever um i encourage them make make your case because if they can make it against me they can make it against anybody because i'm tough <laughs> but and i don't go easy on them but, you know, I was uh, when my daughter uh, 
one of my daughters was, this was when she was much younger. She was probably seven or eight years old. And I was kind of ranting and raving about how they, they mainstream the kids with a lot of uh, attitude problems for various reasons. These kids have the problem. It's not the kid's fault, but really serious behavior problems in classrooms that bring everything to a screeching halt. I mean, sometimes things get violent and it's, it's crazy. And I was kind of ranting and raving, like, why did they start doing that or whatever? And she started telling me about a kid in her class. And she said, why shouldn't he have the right to go to school like everybody else? Yeah, he's got problems, but he's trying to get help for the problems. And, and, uh, you know, he's not a bad guy. So why shouldn't he be able to sit in the class? And I said, you know what? She kind of went on for a couple of minutes. I said, you know what? You changed my mind. You convinced me. You're right. And I think that was an important lesson for her. She knows now more than the other kids. Like if she wants to argue a point, she's welcome to, she's welcome to do that. And I think if you raise kids that way, you've got to warn them. Like you're not going to be respected for doing that. You're not, you're not going to be liked for doing that. You're going to make a lot of enemies um, when you, when you uh, try to make kind of a reasoned, logical argument that leaves emotion out of it. And it's just, it's not popular now. <laughs> so, uh, so it's gonna be hard, but I think, um, you know, my kids, as far as I can tell, don't go along with the crowd. You know, they kind of make up their own minds. Um, they, uh, they, they have a sense, you know, if there's a new kid at school or there's a kid who's being picked on, they, they have a sense that they have a responsibility to kind of stand up for the underdog. Um, and I think ultimately that's going to serve them real well, but it's going to make life tough on them. It's a lot easier to just go along. I mean, I, you know, I've been in punk rock for like 35 years. Most people overwhelmingly just go along and, uh, cause it's easier. And, uh, and I get that, but some of us aren't wired that way, and so we cause a lot of trouble for ourselves. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yeah, obviously you're no stranger to trouble, Ben. And um no. I don't want to cheapen this conversation because it's going amazingly well. And I just, I really go ahead and cheapen it. We've been talking all this highfalutin stuff using three and four syllable words. Let's cheapen (laughs) it.
Well, it, it's a real it's a real joy just hearing such refreshing conversation. And you know, I've always thought from afar. This is our first interaction at, of any length, apart from the odd email in the lead up to this chat. But I've always thought from afar that you know you're one of these people for me that's very misunderstood. Um, and I just wondered if I could hear your take and your side of the story of what happened in Austin and and oh. why why you became this fucking villain um, in the punk rock scene that. You know, I think everybody has such an opinion about you and, and very few take the time to hear your side of the story or bother to get to know you at all. Um, I wonder if you would be up for sharing what went down and how you feel about it now in hindsight. Yeah, but I, I will, but I'm going to be a little coy about it. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I want to say um, I don't think I'm really misunderstood. I think all my problems come from being mis from being understood too well. <laughs> I don't think I'm all that misunderstood. I don't feel that way anyway. Uh, it's, you know, certainly sometimes people will say things, um, you know, I'm, I'm the reason I don't want to get too deep into this is because I'm in the middle of getting things together for, um, for, uh, getting interviews together and starting the editing process for the documentary we're doing about the band. Right. And that issue is, that issue is kind of the centerpiece of, of the film. So I don't, I, I don't want to kind of, blow your load on this podcast. That's I right. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to give the milk away for free. Uh, I, you know, I want to make sure, I want to make sure people have to buy the cow, but um, what's the timeline of events on that? When's that due out? Do you know? I'm, I'm not sure yet because we're still determining, we need to shoot a little more, but not very much. Cause I just got through the interviews and, and my guitarist, Mike Hunchback is directing the film and, and, co-producing it and he's um going through them as well but we have a lot of usable stuff but we want to make sure there's a strong narrative there you know we're not doing something like you know kind of a behind the music thing we don't have anybody uh to my knowledge i guess there's a couple rock critics but we don't like have guys from other bands going oh yeah they really push the envelope and all that shit i don't like that stuff so we're trying to tell a story and it's really a story about conflict. And so that issue that you're talking about, and to if your listeners aren't aware of it, just about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, I had reformed my band, uh, Screeching Weasel, the previous year. And we played a few shows and, and then we I, things were just getting too much. So I had hired management and management wanted us to go do South by Southwest, which is the big music festival down in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and I didn't want to do it for various reasons. The main one being like, we don't belong there. I don't, we're like, you know, at that point, a 25 year old punk band, what, what are we, did they get, are we going to get a big break by playing? I mean, it, it made no sense, but it was the label had a showcase and, and management kept pushing and I kept saying no. And they kept saying, come on, let's do it. And so we agreed to do it. It was terrible because it, we we're getting paid 200 bucks. I mean that, you know, we, so we had to set up other gigs to make up for all the money, you know, every day when we're on the road costs a pretty significant amount of money, a hell of a lot more than $200. So we're losing money on the show. And, uh, uh, so I was, I was not, in a good mood, but the manager, I had done some press in the week leading up because our new album had just come out. It had been out for, by the time we played South by Southwest, it had been out maybe two days. So we had done some press leading up and I had, you know, people had asked me about it and I had, you know, been doing kind of my jokey, angry guy thing saying, yeah, it's going to be a fucking train wreck and I don't want to be there and blah, blah, blah. 
So, uh, so we went down there and did the show and I really kind of, um, I've got a long history of, of, uh, being pretty antagonistic on stage. And so I was really, what happened was we were going to go down there and do, I was just going to do the shortest set I thought I could get away with. So we were going to do a 30 minute set. We we're just going to cut our set in half. And then I walked into the venue. It's just this shitty fucking dive bar, you know, like dirt, dirt floors, literally. Yeah, it looks like you're in a redneck bar. I've seen the video. It, yeah, it's yeah. it was just a fucking. I mean, it's the kind of place that we don't play anymore. It was like being transported back to the '80s. The stage is like two feet high. There's no barricades, uh, which you know that was in everybody's our been drinking all day, right? Like everybody's thoughts. Yep. And the thing is, so I not only agreed to do this thing, but I agreed. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to um, demand that there's barricades there because they don't want to put barricades in there because then they can't sell as many tickets. And so I made some, I made some mistakes. I allowed things to happen that shouldn't have happened. And uh, somebody in the crowd, a woman in the crowd got out of hand as people do all the time. No big deal. And was, you know, like throwing fucking beer at me and, and throwing ice at me, which fucking hurts by the way, when you're up on stage and uh and I was, you know, doing, doing my act. And I said, uh, I said, I can't hit a girl. So somebody, you know, some girl, in the audience has to get, take care of her for me. I said, I'll give you 20 bucks. You know, like pulled out 20 bucks. I'll give you 20 bucks. For that. But you know, she's, I don't know, I guess she, I didn't see her, but I guess she was sneaking around back there. Finally, she fucking pegged me right in the eyeball and I got pissed. And I was like, uh, get your fucking skanky ass up here. And I'll fucking clock you. And uh, and my idea was in front of the stage, there was no barricade, but there were security or at least gentlemen wearing shirts that said security on the back. Um, and my idea was, and I've done this before, because you call people out, usually they don't, they don't show their face. But if they do, if you really kind of get under their skin and they show their face, then boom, you get them, they're thrown out, right? Because the security doesn't know who it is, you assume. Uh, so I've done that I don't know how many times, you know, where you, where you call somebody out and they're dumb enough or drunk enough to be like, yeah, it's me. And they think they're going to fight you. And it's like then security sees them and, and ushers them out. So my idea was if she showed herself, well, then clearly security who knew what was going on was going to show her out, except they didn't. <laughs> they just stood there. And so she came up and then the exclamation point was uh, she spit in my face. So I just, you know, I mean, all the reports that I dove off the stage, I never left the stage. The stage was two feet high, if that. Uh, but I just fucking whank. And she smiled because that, I mean, that's, that kind of thing has happened at so many, it's like people have too much to drink they get out of control and they want to be part of the show and nine times out of ten they're just stoked that 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 it ended the way it did and so that should have been the end of it and had that been the end of it i don't think it would have been any big deal but then the the owner or the manager of the club like attacks me from behind and starts screaming at me and the problem is i didn't know she was the owner or manager of the club i didn't even know it was a girl so I start swinging. I realize it's a girl and I'm pulling my punch and I, 
it just got well that that's the part that ended up on video and uh I got my wife is seven months pregnant. She's on the stage because there's no wings on this stage. You know, this fucking stage cannot fly. This is a fucking dive bar. And uh, so things went haywire. And 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 it's funny because, you know, I walked off stage and I was like, man, we haven't had a night like that in a long time. You know, it's it's. uh, But I was laughing. I was like, you know, that was wild. And then, uh, and the crowd had cheered and everything, and you can hear that on the video. But yeah, I did hear uh, they did they did clap and stuff as you were leaving the stage. Yeah, I mean, again, that's been kind of that's been kind of like people will insist that the crowd's booing. It's like, dude, you can hear it. You can. I know. I don't know much. I'm not a very smart guy, but I know my audience, and I know when they like something and when they don't. So there was one dude who was yelling at me as we were getting out, but. Um, but that's like, I just gave you a way more detailed version than I should have. Um, but there's actually way more to it. There's, there's a lot of neat, um, well, takes this is in wanted, the film on this. This is what I wanted to ask you, Ben, like, you know, sometimes situations in the live environment, they do get out of hand and I'm yeah. not, I'm not condoning any kind of like violence towards anyone, but I am also fully aware that. I DJ, right? I DJ for a living. So I spend, well, pre-COVID at least, and hopefully post-COVID, I spend all my weekends in booths at bars, and it is always, nearly always women who come up and they're drunk and they're spilling their drink all over my equipment and they're going through all my CDs. And it's really hard sometimes to try and reinforce the idea that this is my workspace. (laughs) When you're playing on stage with Screeching Weasel, you're at work. You're trying to entertain a crowd. There's all these unpredictable variants going on. And when people are wasted and they have that drunk confidence that they think, hey, I'm going to fucking be a part of the show. I'm going to get right. on stage. They don't see that that would be like you turning up wasted to their office, pissing in their filing cabinets. And and so people really don't understand that concept. No. So to be devil's advocate here, like there's definitely that side. And also, I don't know whether I'm right in thinking this, but it's agoraphobia and anxiety, something that you suffer from as well have i misread that or is that correct no that's that's absolutely true but that was it's funny because somebody mentioned that at the time i was like are you crazy i was that had nothing to do with it um you weren't in a weird headspace no i was in a i was i mean i just pissed off well when i walked in i was pissed off because what happened is i walked into the place and at south by southwest they have this system by which you know, like, I don't know, the fucking media gets in for free or some of them anyway, but there are these different level uh, de- levels of wristbands. So you can pay to be there, I don't know, a weekend or a week or whatever, and you get the wristband. You just get into shows for free. But then there's also, if you don't want to do that, and if there's room, you can pay to get in. And when I walked in, a fan came up and said, hey, I'm fucking glad you're you're plan and stuff like this like i i he said something like i didn't know if i could afford it because it's 20 bucks i'm like what the fuck they're charging you 20 fucking bucks to get it we're making 200 bucks and they're charging you 20 and most of the people in there didn't have wristbands so we and we packed it we sold out the room i I, so i was fucking like okay we can't we got to drop the 30 minute set we got to do a real set because people are paying real money 
And like, if it was wristband people, I wouldn't care because they were going to see a million shows anyway, but these were our fans who had showed up. So I kind of felt like we got to do a little bit better. And at that point, I mean, it wasn't like I was really angry at that point. It, it was more of a calculated thing. Like, what can I do? This is such a unique situation. So what can I do to make it entertaining for me, but, you know, entertaining for the fans? Because um, the fans like that kind of stuff. They like that kind of, um, well, let's, you know. Let's look at two other examples of recent times. No Effects in Las Vegas and Dickies on the Warp Tour. Um, it's a different thing, but it's the same kind of argument, really, that people are going to see these bands that they're known for. You know, your shtick is very different to Leonard's and Mike's, but your each band is respectively known for what they do. People right. go to these shows expecting it. They enjoy it when they get it. And the thing that's changed the whole game is the smartphone and it's social media. Yeah. Because in all of these instances, if those shows weren't filmed and that moment didn't go viral or whatever... It would have just been another night. As well, you yeah, I mean, you know, 30 years ago, the humorless twats, you're right, they couldn't win because they were they were always in the minority and all, what could they do? They'd write a letter to Maximum Rock and Roll. They could get printed two months later. You know, they had no power. So, um, so any idiot now can have the power to film something to completely strip it of context and to put it in front of, and it's true. I mean, I'm no, I'm no big fan of no FX and fat Mike, but that's what they do. They, they, they make idiotic bad jokes. And so they made an idiotic bad joke. It was in poor taste, but like when you put it out there and fucking Rolling Stone is picking it up and spins picking it up, then a bunch of people are reading it who have no idea of the context. They don't know this is what this band does. They don't, they don't know anything about it because they're not fans. It's a really shitty thing to do. But I, I mean, in my case, honestly, I don't, um, I always know that there's going to be people who don't get it. And, um, and that's fine. I don't, I don't need to, uh, part of the humor to me is is when there are people there who don't get it and mm -hmm. and who of don't course. understand well, that's the tension isn't it that's comedy yes. and and it's and it's and it's funny and it's very much like i mean i i'm obviously not a stand up comedian at least not intentionally but um but it's very much like stand up comedy you know i never understood why these comedians allow heckling why they allow that to be part of the app because to me when i hear heck they're never fucking funny they're never funny. If they were adding something to the show, I guess I could see it. But all you're doing is you're you're disrupting the performer's timing. I didn't fucking pay to listen to you run your big mouth. But they all feel it's like a macho thing. They all feel like they've got like security won't throw these assholes out. They feel like it's their responsibility to deal with them. Well, my, my attitude was always I'll do that when I have to, because in the old days we played shows, there wasn't any security. But as soon as we had security, I'm like, that's their job. I'm not, it's not my job to fucking interact with these assholes. And that's really the, at the heart of what went wrong that night was the security didn't do their job. And after the show, my manager said, oh, yeah, that was just um, the manager's bar staff. And she just threw security shirts on him. And I'm like, you know, you, it would have helped if you had told me that before I went on stage. But look, I mean, I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to hit anybody, but you know, the truth do you, is. Do you carry remorse and regret for what went down? 
Not really, because it's, I mean, I regret, I always regret obviously losing my temper. And in that moment, there's this idea that like the whole show, no, the whole show was an act and it was a really good act. And I wasn't completely on my game that night. There were a lot of really bad jokes or badly delivered jokes because it was completely extemporaneous. I hadn't planned. Like I said, I only really planned to do a proper set when I walked in. So I'm kind of coming up with stuff off the top of my head. And a lot of it, a lot of it was bad, but it was landing. I don't know how, but the crowd was into it. It was going well. But then there was, there was that one moment where I lost my temper and it's always embarrassing to lose your temper. I mean, um, no, you know, nobody wants to lose their temper in front of, especially in public, you look like a fool. And, uh, and so I'm sorry that happened. And, uh, you know, obviously I don't want to hit anybody, but it's also the kind of situation where it's like, it's not like it was planned out. When somebody spits in your face, some people will take it and some people won't. And I guess, I guess I didn't that night. And uh, so it's kind of, you know, do I feel remorse? I mean, I feel remorse about, in a way about doing the show because it was, we didn't belong there. And we knew, I knew we didn't belong there, but, um, but as far as how everything panned out, I guess my attitude is like, you know, it's like a million other shows I've played where shit went south at some point and, and it's, it was a story to tell. And it's, it's kind of like nobody, you know, nobody got hurt. And, um, was there any I, contact with the two women? Now I had heard again from my manager uh, who denies this all on, on, in the documentary. It's great. Uh, but um, he had told me after the show that the, the woman in the audience was a regular at the bar. So she wasn't like a fan of the band. I don't think she was a regular at the bar. And she was good friends with the, the manager, the woman on the stage who attacked me from behind. So I think what happened was a, a, a lot of what I was doing was just running down the club. I'm like, this fucking shithole, it was called the Scoot Inn. I'm like, unfortunately, you know, the rats and the cockroaches took that sign literally. Just dumb, almost like, you know, Henny Youngman kind of kind of humor. I mean, it was just not, it wasn't really that funny, but I think she got really fucking pissed and I think her friend was kind of sticking up for her. I don't know that to be a fact, but these are all things that I was told. Um, but it's funny because the like right as we were leaving we heard sirens and i didn't think anything of it it turns out the cops showed up somebody in the crowd called the cops it's like what fucking planet am i living on i felt like rip van winkle i didn't know where i was you called the cops because of a because of a little altercation there wasn't even any blood for god well there was blood on me because big bird was scratching me up she tore <laughs> she tore a, big, a few gashes in my bicep here but i mean it wasn't like anybody got hurt i didn't I, you know, always from day one when I was in punk, there was never, ever any idea that women in punk were, were delicate flowers who, who, like, they were tough chicks, you know? My girlfriend was a tough chick. She didn't take shit from anybody. I mean, that's what most of the girls were like in punk for many years. And and the idea that you would take this attitude that that women 
like they were people were taking this attitude that I would have expected to hear from like a 70 year old dude at a VFW hall, you know, who's still who's still, you know, wears his fucking sergeant cap from when he from when he was in the war. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? So, I mean, there was definitely it was it was really a wake up for me. It was definitely, um, you know, this world has completely changed. And I mean, thankfully, uh, we don't we would never do anything like that again. We don't put ourselves in any situation in, in a club like that where there's not a barricade and, you know, there's a security meeting before every show and. And we do walkthroughs to make sure there are no cans or bottles or tour manager does. I mean, all that stuff is taken care of now. Whereas it was, it, that night was kind of a perfect storm of idiocy and a, a whole bunch of things conspired together to create this thing that if any one or two of those things hadn't been factors, it wouldn't have ended the way it did and it wouldn't have played out the way it did. But I'll tell you the other thing is that I'm really glad it happened because it, 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 forced me into a lot of, um, I mean, first of all, I thought my career was over. I was too dumb to know back then that the internet was, when the internet says your career is over, it's just like, it's wish fulfillment. It doesn't actually mean your career is over, but I assume my career was over and it's kind of like, okay, what do I want to do next? I had, my son was to be born two months later. So that was my main focus. And, uh, and when the smoke had cleared, I was like, I was like, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to find a band, put a band together. And uh, I'm going to go, you know, do it and, and do better than I ever did. And that's exactly what happened. We went out and within a year, less than a year, well, within, within three months, we had made a record um, with a new lineup. Within uh, less than six months, we played a sold out show in Chicago. And then that spring, I think we went out so in under a year, we went out and we're do, drawing bigger crowds than we had before. So I really found it's a good lesson, I think, for anybody who's kind of been canceled on the Internet is that the, the reality of the Internet is very, very different from the reality on the ground. And, and my fan base was just like, this is bullshit. We want you back. I mean, even the ones there were plenty of them who were like, hey. The dude fucking shouldn't have done that. He was out of line. He fucked up. But it was still like, yeah, he fucked up, but he's our guy. And, uh, you know, I put out an apology and, and everything uh, like the day after it happened. And the thing and, is, uh, as well, Ben, is there's guys out there that are headlining stadiums right now that have done far worse than that. Yeah, you but know. they weren't captured on camera. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> that, that, that's it. That's the key. Thing. I mean, when you hear when you hear about some once the shit that was going down in the 70s, I mean, it, it, it makes you want to eighties and and nineties up to the nineties and even beyond. Yeah. It's yeah. funny because there's not, there's really, as far as I can remember, uh, there's not a lot, like if you're going to, if you're going to get me, you're going to have to get me about something on stage. Um, there's not a lot in my personal life. Not that I haven't been an asshole plenty of times, but it goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, to me, it was funny because when I came back from Austin um, uh, and the internet was, you know, I was this terrible person and I was getting death threats and all this kind of crazy stuff. And I, that's not the first time that happened to me. I was getting death threats back in the eighties. So, but it's a little bit different when you have young kids at home 
and uh, a pregnant wife. You, 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 in a situation where normally would be like, fuck it. You're, you're kind of like, well, I, you know, I, this probably isn't worth taking seriously, but I kind of have to take it seriously. I have to think about, you know, home defense and, and things of that. I'm not going to go into details, but you know, things of that nature. So, um, but it was interesting because all of my friends who are not in music and associates who are not in music at all and really just don't know anything about that world were the attitude was so radically different. It was so completely different. It was like, yeah, you know, somebody spit in your face and you lost your temper, you know, of course you're not proud of it, but, but, you know, people fuck up basically and you move, you move on. And so when you, I think, you know, a lot of what goes on in that world is just the same thing that goes on that we've been talking about, about social media in general, where people just pile on because they can and it's fun, you know, and, and, and do luckily you still have good friends in the industry. Did a lot of people like drop you after that? Were there many that were like by your side and there for you? How did that play out in the music side of it? I mean, it, you know, I never had a lot of friends in the music business. I'm just not, I, I don't, you know, musicians, frankly, are mostly very dumb, boring people. <laughs> you know, you're not going to have a lot of scintillating conversations with most musicians. So, um, so of the people, I mean, the guys that ended up in my band, I, you know, I really like these guys. Like there's been a couple changes in the lineup since then, but, um, but like my friend Joe from the queers stood up and he, and he spoke out for me and that cost him, man, that really cost him. Uh, my friend, uh, Jenny Choi, who was not, not at all a, a well-known musician just does a, does a band with her husband. Um, but she spoke up as well, but yeah, no, I, I, but the thing is, I mean, I, I expected that too. It's I, what I found was weird were the people who, I didn't really know who felt like this need to, to um, grandstand on social media about it. And it's just kind of like, okay, I mean, I, I just don't get that. I don't, that's not the kind of thing that I would do. You know, when NoFX, you mentioned their thing in Las Vegas, and that was a serious thing. I mean, they, they weren't getting booked for a while by the, by the, um, the, uh, one of the two big uh, corporations that control most, there's basically two corporations that control most of the music venues now in our country. It's really become a, a very different uh, situation that was even, even in the 90s. And uh, one of them just wouldn't book them for a while. And they were getting, you know, serious death threats. Uh, and, and Fat Mike, from NoFX, who also runs Fat Records, was like number one in line to uh, to kick me when I was down when my thing happened. But when his thing happened, part of me wanted to go out and be like, and be like, uh, <laughs> you know, karma's a fucking bitch, pal. But I, I just couldn't bring myself. I don't like the guy, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. So instead, I I just kind of went out and took their side in terms of like, yeah, these guys are kind of boneheads, but like, what are you doing? This is what they do. And, and it's ridiculous to, to overreact like this over a bad joke. Everybody knew it was a joke. It's just a, a, a joke in bad taste. And, um, 
And, you know, I have felt for a long time that we have lost. I don't watch a lot of stand up comedy anymore because so much of it is so gutless now. And, and I think the reason is that we have lost we've we've become so uptight about this kind of thing, about people saying offensive things that music has suffered greatly for it. But comedy, maybe even more, because comedy in order to be successful, it requires an element of surprise. So somebody says something on stage that you didn't expect them to stay to say. Now, granted, there is a lot of comedy where, and it's often very popular, where the person says exactly what you do expect them to say. But I'm talking more about artistically successful, like the really great comedians that, that I think we would all agree are, are the great comedians. Um, they're not up there just saying the things you expect them to say. There's an element of surprise. And in order to get to that spot, I'm not a comedian. I don't have any insight into this, but it seems to me in order to get to that spot, just like music, you have to be willing to walk that a line, a very, very, very thin line. And it's a tightrope that you're walking on. And the and, problem is over time, the line moves. And so well, the, what happens now is people are judging the comedians of yesterday by the line of today. And they're like, right. well, that's inappropriate. It's like, yeah, but then it wasn't. Yeah, but not well. Yeah, not only that, but it's a problem at any in any time because you know certainly even back in the seventies when which was kind of a golden age of comedy in many ways. Yeah, the golden age as well. Yeah. Even then, if you're walking that tightrope, you're gonna you're gonna cross that line sometimes, and the audience is gonna let you know it, and then you oh okay. I tried that, didn't work, but that, but that's the way it always worked. You'd try it out, didn't work. Okay, that one, I'm not going to do that one again, but I know I can go up to this point. Well, when you're constantly nitpicking at people and everything's on the fucking internet, then the line moves and moves and moves and moves and where it's moving away from is funny and where it's moving towards is predictable. So I see comedians going up and more than anything, it seems to me now, especially the ones who are like Patton Oswalt. That guy is the fucking worst, man. I mean, he's one that uh, he is so fucking sanctimonious. And it's he's not trying to make people laugh. He's trying to get applause. He's trying to say things that people will like and applaud. And because uh, he's not fucking funny because he's not trying to be funny. That's not his act anymore, if it ever was. And I think a lot of other people have followed suit. They're pussies. It's easier to just do what's expected of you than to do that dangerous shit that Richard Pryor did and Lenny Bruce and and George Carlin. And and uh, I, I would even throw Andrew Dice Clay in there. You know, comedians hated Andrew Dice Clay. But if you listen to his stuff, it's dated poorly. A lot of it. It's it's not aged well. But if you listen to that record he did with the guy, the big producer guy, you know, the one I'm talking about where where he's in like some small bar. It's like at the height of his fame. And he goes into some small comedy club and just improvs and half the set he's bombing, but it's this really fucking compelling. It's, it's good because he's bombing for that reason. He's fucking, he didn't plan out the material. He's just walking this tightrope and half the time he's fucking blowing it, but it's a really, actually it's, it's one of my favorite comedy records because of that, because it's just such a strange, it's, 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 it's strange 
in the sense that maybe once upon a time it wasn't. But to hear it now, I don't, I don't know if comedians do that anymore. It used to be they would try out their material in these smaller venues and things. And you can't do that anymore. It's all going to be on the internet. So I, do, I think do you like Doug really Stanhope, Ben? Have you heard any of his stuff, Doug Stanhope? Do you like I, him? I I know the name, but I don't think I've ever seen his stuff. The one guy I like. You should that, check it out. I think you'd like Doug Stanhope. The the one guy I like that I will I'll check him out. Um, the one guy that I like, and he he is not great all the time, but Bill Burr I think is is. Uh, I love Bill Burr. It's pretty yeah. funny. Yeah. And he, and, uh, he, he goes up to the line, definitely. He's not afraid yeah. to go to the line. And he actually shows that you can still be provocative and challenging and, dare I say it, offensive. And it can still be art and entertainment and, quote, unquote, acceptable even by today's standards. He's very smart with it, I think. And I think yeah. part of the challenge is you kind of, I don't think it's all over. I think you can still be out there. You just got to think of creative ways in which to do it and smart you know, ways in which to do it. it. Keep in mind, if you're going to do it, that you're going to be punished for it because yes. this is the, and, and look, in my case, it always was. Like I said, I'm not a comedian, but there are elements. You know, I, I liked stand up comedy. I never had any interest in being a stand up comedian, but um, you're playing a character on stage, right? Absolutely. And, and for me, it was really um, th there was a lot of pro wrestling influence in in what I did. Andy and uh, Andy Kaufman was a tremendous influence because I saw the power of never like what is what happens when you never break character you never laugh at your own jokes you never even let on that it is a joke like you fuck with people's heads and to me the reason I wanted to do that wasn't because I don't like people and I want to fuck with their heads it's because that's what I would wanted as an audience member I mean, I was trying to give I was trying to write the kind of songs that I wanted to hear as an audience member and I was trying to create the kind of stage persona that I would have liked to see where I would have been sitting there in the audience going, man, I fucking don't know if this guy's for real or not. Cause he won't, he, he won't break character and he won't laugh at his own jokes. And uh, I don't see really anybody doing that now. We're all too scared. You know, we all have to, and I do this myself sometimes too. We all have to put our disclaimers out there and say, you know, look, I'm, I want to discuss these things, but but I'm against racism <laughs> and I'm against homophobia and all these things you want to say, uh, because, you know, I think you, you know that we live in an age now more than ever, where if you don't, you're just opening the door to people and none of us want to be thought of badly. But when you do what I do for as long as I've done it, you kind of get used to it. I mean, I, I, you know, I was talking with my guitarist, Mike Hunchback. And uh, he said, um, he said, you know, uh, a lot of people just nowadays, everybody knows what it's like to get canceled, you know, but a lot of people, it hadn't really happened, in, in, especially in punk at that point, 10 years ago, it hadn't really become a thing to cancel somebody. He's like, you really went through it. Um, when it was kind of uncharted territory. And I said, honestly, that's why I have a little bit, not a lot. But I have a little bit of sympathy for the guys in the band who ended up going out. I mean, it was boneheaded, but they ended up putting out a press release denouncing me and saying, we're taking a break from the band, which was then interpreted as they quit. They didn't quit. Uh, I fired them, though, but because I can't have guys putting out press releases uh, denouncing me. 
I would think that's common sense. They were really surprised they were fired and the drummer kept trying to get his job back. <laughs> he was like, he was like, no, no, we put, you put out your statement and we put out ours. Now we're on a level playing field. I said, buddy, you're not on the playing field at all. You're on the fucking bus home. What are you talking about? I fired you. Why are we even talking anymore? Uh, but, but I have a little bit of sympathy for them because they, I've been doing this for a long time, like having people hate me and, and make death threats. Like it wasn't, and I'm not saying it wasn't tough because it was a fucking shit storm, but it wasn't as bad for me. I mean, I've heard about people who have been canceled, who had the internet against them, who were like contemplating suicide. Or not even contemplating, probably doing it in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, it's just like, I, I know, I know what that's like. You know, to me, it was so strange. I have some sympathy because those guys wanted to get out of the shit storm. But it's also like I was trying to tell them at the time, I'm like, guys, this is going to blow over in like a week or two. And in fact, it happened faster than that. It, it blew over as soon as I put out an apology. The next day, it had fucking blown over. And then they put out a press release and it all started again. I'm like, you fucking idiots. You were, you were free and clear. Um, but the good thing is, I mean, I have to say it was a tough time, but my wife and I were laughing a lot at, at, at that time. I don't, you know, maybe it was gallows humor. I don't know, but we had a kid on the way and it was kind of like, Oh, fuck all this bullshit. My friend, Owen Murphy, who I used to do a podcast with a great guy, a wonderful human being. He calls me up. He's like, is there anything I can do? I'm like, I, you know, fucking send help. I don't know. There, no, there's nothing you can do. I'm like, it's a, it's a shit storm. He stepped in and, and took over his manager. He'd never managed, you know, he hasn't managed a Burger King in his life, but he, he took over and he did it and really saved the band. Um, so it, it was cool. Like, yeah, I, I guess I could focus on the people who threw me under the bus, but I, it remains actually, weirdly enough, one of the fondest memories I have because of all the people who stepped up and were like, like Zach Damon, who had been in the band in the late 90s, called me up and he's like, man, this is fucking bullshit. You need a guitarist. I'm in. I'm like, right on, man. Join the band. And and he found a drummer for us who's who still plays with us. Um, well, when your and, chips uh, are down, that's when you find out who your real friends are, don't you? Oh, like, yeah. And I found out. will always be there. I found out. I mean, we we ended up with a great booking agent. No booking agent would touch us. And this dude was just like, yeah, man, I fucking love a challenge. And I, I love your band. And, and I want to see, you know, I think we can do something great here. And we did. I mean, that first year or two after that was the most fun I've ever have, have being in the band. Because... It, we were going out and we saw so much fucking support and love from the audiences. And, and so many people were coming up to me and going, man, I'm sorry about, about what happened. You know, I had been, when it first happened, I had been getting, you know, emails from people, ex band members and stuff, you know, being supportive and just saying, Hey, whatever went down, it, you know, this is insane. It's, you know, whatever, whatever you might've been at fault at, this is nuts. And, uh, it meant a lot to me. So I, I still think about that. And, and, um, and when I see somebody being canceled now, it, it gets to me because I, I sit there going, man, I just hope they've got people in their lives like that, 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 you know, 
it's got to be really hard if you're alone in that situation. And uh, for us, you know, for my family, it was hard, but it was also a really fun time. And it was a, it, I, I just, I, I have memories of my wife and I in the kitchen talking and, and I'm like, well, my fucking career's over. I'm fucked. I don't know what we're going to do for money. And she's like, fuck it. We'll find an apartment to move in. <laughs> she's like, I honestly, I don't, she's like, this is such fucking bullshit. If you can't do it on your terms, why do it? And, and so when we started again, that was really the thing that my friend Owen focused on. God bless him, because his mantra was, you know what the fuck you're talking about. Let's do things your way. I'm not going to try to tell you to go play South by Southwest and other boneheaded stuff like that. I say, how do you want to run your business? Let's do it. Because he, his theory was, he said, you have been surrounded by boys your entire career who want to argue with you and argue against your instincts. Why don't we try? Let's go with your instincts. Let's go with your gut and just see what happens. And nothing but great things happened. And I was like, man, this is, this is awesome. You know, we went out uh, the first time we played Seattle. We hadn't been out there for a while. Fan showed up and, and we knew her. She had popped up online before Jackie and she shows up, uh, with a big homemade t-shirt on. I love Ben Weasel. I was like, man, this is, this is just, it, if I hadn't had that experience of things going south for me, I, I, how could I have a, really appreciated that? I mean, that almost brought a tear to my eye. That was just so wonderful. And, uh, and okay. I had a lot of experiences like that. Yes, redemptive, exactly like we were talking about, if we want to come full circle. And, and to deny people redemption, like we do on the internet, I think is is pretty much the definition of evil. It's great to see you talking about it with such clarity and joy, man. Like you're saying there about you and your wife, that's a beautifully romantic situation. Um, and that's when you know you've got a partner for life, when you go through moments like that and perspective's everything. And, you know, you've put so much years and, and energy and effort and blood and sweat and tears and passion into this project and I love that in that moment, you were like, well, if it all goes, I've got this and that's all I need. Yeah. And to keep both and watch both grow out of that situation. That's an amazing thing, man. Yeah, it was it was it was glorious. It was really uh, it was really, um, you know, sometimes you have to go through some some suffering and it can be pretty bad. But if it, it, when you come out on the other side, you often find that all those things that you wish hadn't been happening while they were happening, kind of um, served a purpose in a way. And, and so, um, you know, at this point, I don't, I mean, it's been 10 years, so I don't, you know, hold grudges against, against people who I thought behaved badly back then. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope they have figured that, I mean, I'm in touch with some of them again, but uh, um but mainly when I think about it, I don't think about those people. I mainly think about the people who stepped up and were just such good friends to me at a time when it was, frankly, very unpopular. And, and, and when, like I said, a guy like Joe King to go out and say something publicly, that cost him, literally, that cost him. That cost him a booking agent because we had had the same booking agent and she, she quit, you know, uh, he ended up better off in the long run, but I think she's out of the business now, but uh, it put, it made him look bad in the eyes of a lot of people, a lot of fans and, and a lot of other bands and stuff. And uh, 
but he never hesitated. And Joe and I have had our differences over the year, God knows. But it's like you were saying earlier, if you got a problem with your buddy, you call him out privately. Um, you don't, you don't, you don't throw the guy under the bus. So, so, you know, me and him, we've had our private conversations over the years about, about things that, you know, I've yelled at Joe, uh, but you know, he had my back at a time when it was dangerous to, to do so. So, you know, he's, he's never gonna, he's never gonna have to worry about me having, having his, uh, and, and, you know, you don't find a lot of that in music. I don't know about other, you know, you do the DJ thing. I don't know about other things, but no, in man. music and especially in punk, Lo- man, loyalty are mercenary. scarce. Loyal yeah. loyalty is very scarce. It is. And so when you find it, it's really, and, and it was, <laughs> it was an experience I'm glad I had in a weird way. And, and, you know, should I have hit somebody? No, of course not. I never want to hit anybody. I never want to be in that position. Um, but at the same time to kind of, to kind of, and I'll still get it, you know, the troll show, but it's like, you hit women as though I'm, as though, you know, I'm a wife beater, like, like the stage was my house and that woman was my girlfriend or something. It's kind of like, look, man, a lot of dumb shit happened that night, including some on my part. Uh, but I, I, I don't, I, if, if you're the type of person who thinks like, I'm going to hold on to that. And uh, I'm going to condemn somebody for life for that. Then, then okay, be that person. But I, I, it's like I said when I saw that Fat Mike situation, I just couldn't. And when I saw the thing with the Dickies as well, I spoke out really loudly and publicly about that because it's, it's like, you know, yeah, some of the Dickies stage banner, frankly, I have found obnoxious, you know, and I have a pretty high, uh, I have a pretty high bar for that. Uh, but I remember seeing him back in the in the eighties down in Phoenix and and being like, Jesus, some of this shit is really fucking beyond the pale. But it's also that they've been doing that since you know way before most of these people were born. And 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 if you go there and you're the guy or girl who doesn't get the joke, then you know the best thing to do is is, is walk away and say this isn't for me. You know, especially, if you're, thing, especially if you're at a fucking festival where there's five or six other stages, do you know what I mean? Right. Turn around, walk away, go see a band you want to see. Well, That's and what was worse about that situation was that it wasn't a fan. It yeah, was it was somebody it was somebody with an organization that was on and associated with a band that was on the festival. It's like, I, I mean, yeah, obviously it's unprofessional, but what a shitty thing to do. I, I, I mean, I don't know why. If you've got to call somebody out, like I said, it's I think it's best. To first of all, wait till you've calmed down and you're not angry anymore. And second of all, to do it privately. This idea that that we've got to play out this stuff in public is just appalling because it doesn't work. It all it does is feed your ego. Hopefully we can get um past this eventually, but I don't know. I don't know. I've got a question for you. I know I'm the one being interviewed, but do you have any hope? How are we gonna get out of this crazy internet? lynch mob insanity and just start talking to each other like people and saying, you know what? Uh, I think you're dead wrong on this issue, but I don't think it makes you evil. I think it makes you wrong. And here's why. Are we, are we ever going to get back to that? Well, that's the question I usually ask all my guests because I'm on that eternal quest to find the answer. And I guess what I've learned from all the conversations I've had is that there, there might be hope, there's a chance of redemption for the world, I think, if we continue to do what you and I are doing right now and just talk, just talk openly, calmly uh, and frankly 
about these issues um, with people of the other sides as well and just try and hear the other person out and understand their perspective and step to people with compassion and respect and empathy and patience. And I think if we do those things, then we can. It's whether or not people can find all of those qualities in this heightened, intensified, crazy, internet-driven witch hunt cancel culture world that seems to be the predominant thing now. Um, but I think we can fight the tides. I think people are going to get sick of it. I think there'll be a breaking point. Um, and I just think that conversation is the only way out. That's why you know, I do it, this show, Ben. It just used to be, it wasn't the intention, but the nature of media used to be such that, that you couldn't, you know, it's that instant reaction. You couldn't do it. You know, you had to you had to wait your turn and send your letter into the editor or whatever it was. And take and a breath, I don't, calm down, yeah, compose your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know. I had to learn very early on when I was doing the band. And and this is before email when I was doing faxes. Don't send the first fax you write when you're pissed off. Write it, get it out of your system, shred it and then write the one where you're actually acting like a normal human being instead of a wild eyed lunatic. So, that's, a, uh, that's a great piece of advice because I actually heard this in a conversation the other day come up and it's like, if you want to get something off your chest, if you feel that need to vent and rage and call something out, as you said, just write it down, do it. So it's out of you. You've expressed yourself and then have a read of it after a day. And if you still want to put that public or send it, then by all means do that. But Which you won't unless you're you insane. Because you'll read it back and go, fucking hell, I sound a bit of, yeah, an enraged <laughs> lunatic right there. So write it, get it out, get it down. And then get it in the bin. Yeah. But unfortunately, <laughs> the only way I could learn that was by f fucking sending the shitty emails or faxes in the first place and then going, oh, what did I do? So, I, but honestly, like I've thought a lot about it. I do a newsletter now on Substack infrequently, but it's the closest thing that I can get to the those old days of like when I used to send out, a, I write up by hand and photocopy and print a newsletter and send it out in envelopes. Well, I can't afford to do that anymore. So this is the closest I could get to that. But I wonder sometimes, you know, it's really up to the youth to decide to set the trends and decide where we're going. I wonder sometimes, okay, they're really into cassettes now, which is cool because when you're into when you're into cassettes, it's like, oh man, these people aren't just flipping through songs. They're actually listening to the whole album. I mean, cassettes suck. I don't want to listen to them, but I, but I like the idea behind it. Maybe those people, those younger people will go back to, you know, figure out some way to go back to the fanzine, you know, not webzine, but fanzine or, or newsletter, some other way of communicating, you know, try to get over the barrier of, of the expense of it is really the hard part, but get back to a thing of going, because that, you know, that cassette thing really it made no sense to me at first. And then I thought about it. I thought the, the, the reason they've got to be doing it is because it's almost like a discipline. It forces them to listen to the album. It's much harder to fast forward through stuff you don't want to hear. And, and there's something about that, that, that I find very relatable being the age I am when I grew up and, you know, five bucks was a lot of money to spend on a record. So if I bought that record, even if it was something like, Black Sabbath born again. It's like, oh my God, this is dreadful, but I'm going to listen to it over and over and find something to like about it because I spent my money. Uh, maybe something sim similar will happen with uh, 
with media and communication, maybe people ditch their smartphones or, you know, I've thought for years, if we could just get somebody to manufacture a really good dumb phone, I would take it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. I I can give up all the shit on my phone. I just want to be able to text and call. Old school. If if somebody could, because they all suck. But if somebody could make a quality one, I think there'd be a market for it, man. I, I, I just, but I agree. We've got to figure out, we've got to get out of this insane ranting loop and, and maybe try to talk to each other and listen. And you're right. Listen to people that you disagree with and have compassion. And it's hard. It's hard for me to have compassion for the people who want to cancel people. But, but then I try to remember it's so emotional for them. They've got to be going through some, you know, God knows what's happening in their lives or has happened in their lives. They've got to be going through some tough stuff. I mean, it's hard to be sympathetic, but at the same time, there's clearly some issues there, I think. And uh, I think the role of parents as well is so important. I'm not a dad myself, but like, you know, a lot of patterns are learned behavior, aren't they? And and I do feel like if, if anybody out there listening to this wonders how we can change the world, what you're doing, what you're talking about, instill in your kids this idea to maybe question, you know, what's in front of them, think about it. Also, be compassionate, be loving, be loyal. You know, these things that aren't rewarded in society, but if you can reward them in the household and instill them there, then hopefully we'll have legions of young people going out into the world and, and turning the tide and making it a better place again and getting rid of this selfish, you know, narcissistic reward the self kind of culture which seems to be pervading at the moment Um, it would be interesting if that i mean if that happens i'm all in if somebody wants to start a movement i'm too old to start movements but if but if somebody wants to start a movement and and uh and and go down that road i'm all in uh and and hopefully it can happen because it's just it's gotten every time i think this has to implode it can't keep going it can't get any worse it It keeps going and getting worse (laughs) and and and, it, and and you be and you get to the point where you go. I'm not sure if I'm reading literal satire, like somebody is just replacing a couple words in a Monty Python script, or or if this person is for real. I can't fucking tell anymore half the time. Uh, we've got we've got to figure out a way out of this because we're killing ourselves. And on that happy note, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> This has been great. I knew it would be. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And I see on your Instagram, you're a fan of the cigars. So if you're ever in the UK, we'll have to meet up and and smoke a Cuban. I've got a whole box of them from my trip out there a couple of years ago. Oh, outstanding. Wonderful. Yes, I would be happy to. So we'll, Uh, we'll break tobacco and yeah, continue the conversation then. But I've really enjoyed it, Ben. And I just I'm a huge fan of your music. And it's great to see that, you know, you're still out there doing it and continuing to not only release music, but increasingly get i think get better as screeching weasel evolve over time you're one of the few punk bands for me that didn't just peak in the 90s and are dining out on the nostalgia hits you know there's always something new and exciting with every record you release well thank Um, you i appreciate that and i i had fun doing this so i hope i hope it all works as a podcast it was perfect dude and yeah any plans for a uk visit in the diary well, I mean, we don't have plans for anything right now because of the pandemic and it's it's it seems to be more or less over, but you know, it's it's uh, the the real trick now is is um which you know, the CDC says, "Okay, you don't have to mask up if you've been vaccinated, but but 
it's really up to the local municipalities. And so um, you can say, yeah, we're going to play here, but then we can't route anything nearby because these other areas. So we're really still in a state of flux. And you're going to wait. It sounds like the smart play. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to pan out. We are going to get back out and do some do some shows certainly at some point. But right now we're we're just about to start. We're starting in about two weeks uh, or three weeks recording a new album, and uh, and I'm trying to get the the documentary done. It, it probably won't happen, but I'm I'm hoping to have the documentary ready when the new album is ready. So uh, so we'll see. But uh, you know, certainly keeping busy. But the gig thing. You know, my guys are itching to get out and play and and, you know, I would like to get out. But it's right now we're just in a holding pattern. And, you know, I don't know. We could be out in September. We could not be out till a year from now. It just depends on how things play out. I'm just holding out for 2022, to be honest. This year for me is it's not a write off because that's not the way I want to live my life. But I'm just going to continue to do podcasts and kind of, you know, just live in the moment and enjoy life. But I think 2022 is when everything will return on a mass scale. That's pretty much the idea in our camp. But we're still hoping, you know, maybe we can at least get out and do a few, you know, a short run in September or at the very least, maybe get out this winter down to Chicago or something. you know, but yeah, we're pretty much in the same camp. Like it's probably not going to be happening for us till next year. But what what year next year is going to be? Eh? I hope <laughs> <laughs> those roaring twenties might finally get underway two years later. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, yeah. Right. Good luck with the documentary. I can't wait to see that. Um, can't wait to hear the new record too. The last one was amazing. Um, Thank you. And keep in touch, man. I'll let you know when this goes up, and I hope to see you in person one day. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ben. Good man. All right. So long. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 